cool. Amen? Yeah. It's always good to remember that a story doesn't begin and end with us, right? To look back and to see that we're standing on the shoulders of people that have walked before us, that have, that have learned things uh, through lots of success and through lots of failure so that we don't make the same mistakes, but that have built a reputation in the community for what it means to be part of Mariner's Church. There's relationships and places we get to walk into with favor already established because of what God has been doing here for over 25 years. And it's not just the 25 years, but to think that we're part of a story, really, that's been around for centuries, right? That God had started writing long before we ever even knew he existed. That now we get to come and enter and engage that story today. And we look at what, why has that story lasted? I mean, what is it that allows change to be brought into the world that lives forever? This past week... Uh, I posted just a question through Twitter and Facebook as I was wrestling with studying for this week. And I'm like, you know, what's the one thing that you think could bring real change to the world? And it was interesting, all the responses and the first things that come to our mind, right? Because a lot of us think that it's something. If there's enough money out there, I can change the world, right? I mean, we can buy our way out of any problem. Some of us technology, right, which is amazing. But now it allows for people to communicate And you can have these groups that form globally around the world and create all kinds of influence that bring change. Armies are built because they believe they can bring change to the world. People, personalities, right? A lot of us think some sort of person. A presidential election, anyone? Anybody watching those debates? I'm the only one watching the debates. Like, this is a raise your hand kind of moment. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of a fascinating journey. And there's some change that takes place, but is it really change? Is it something that lasts forever? I mean, what's the one thing, if you could ask for anything, that you would ask for that you think would bring change to the world? What would you want to be armed with as you went out into the world to bring change? Last week, we considered the question, what is God like? And we started going, okay, we know that God is like Jesus. You're in church. The right answer is always Jesus. God is like Jesus. That's why Jesus came, to show us what God is like. And what did that look like? We unpacked Philippians and some other passages where we got to see Jesus is selfless. He's about other people. He's about serving. He's about surrendering his rights and his responsibilities and his status and all these things, his power and position to come and to serve. And then we're invited to have that same posture as a humble servant in the world. But Can having the posture and the mindset of a humble servant bring change to the world? No. That alone does not bring change to the world. So what is it? What's the one thing we need? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the story that you've been writing that you invite us into in this moment right now today. We thank you that none of us is here by accident, that you are seeing and you know our stories, each one of us that you are speaking to the core of our being and inviting us into a deeper, more honest relationship with you, God. So as you continue to speak, would you give us, as your children, the willingness and the courage to listen and to follow, to become what you're calling us to be, and to be armed with the one thing, God, that you bring change to the world with. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we find answers 
in God's word like we do every week. And I'm going to start with a story from Luke 10 that gives us a hint about what this one thing might be that brings change to the world. There's some people coming down with Bibles. If you need one, you can just raise your hand. They're going to give you one. You can write in them and stuff too. Like don't feel like you can't write. You always remember stuff when you write it. So Luke 10, there's a story. It's a famous story. You guys are all familiar with it. The story of the Good Samaritan, right? Where this leading high priest guy comes to Jesus. And it says he came to test him. Never a good idea, right? When you see, oh, I'm going to test Jesus, don't. Always going to go bad. So he tests Jesus and he says, hey, how can I live forever? What does it look like to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do you think it is? And the guy essentially says, well, I think it's love God and love my neighbor. If I had to summarize the whole thing up. And what does Jesus say? You're right. Go and do that. And so the guy says, well, okay, except who's my neighbor? Oh, because he was trying to justify himself and make it a little easier. And so Jesus tells this great story about um, this Jewish guy who's going from Jerusalem to a local town. And we know what happens. He's on the road. He gets beaten by robbers, robbed, stripped naked, left to die on the side of the road. What happens? First story we hear is a priest, a Jewish priest, a man of the same kind, walks by. He sees the man. And you got to know, his heart breaks for the guy. This guy's beaten and bloody and laying on the side of the road. But what does he do? Goes over to the other side, walks past him. Next guy, a Levite, right? Another leader in the community sees him. Walks by on the other side of the road. Finally, the Samaritan, right? And you've got to understand, we know Samaritans at that time were the most opposing, uh, repulsive culture and people group to Jewish people. They could not be more different in their eyes. And so this Samaritan sees this Jewish guy beaten on the side of the road. And what does he do? He goes over to him. And it says, he, first thing, he, he took pity on him and he cared for his wounds, well, I'm sure he didn't have some medical kit, right, strapped on his toga or whatever he had. So he probably had to rip up his own clothes and bandage his wounds and all that stuff. And then what does he do? Well, he throws him in his car. Or it says he throws him over his donkey. But either way, he gives him transportation so he doesn't just leave him laying there bandaged. And he takes him to an inn. And he puts him up overnight. And he stays with him until the next day. And then he even leaves money for the innkeeper and says, hey, whatever, ha- whatever he needs, just make sure it's taken care of. If there's any more... I'll take care of it when I come back through. So Jesus tells this whole story. And then in verse 36, Luke chapter 10, verse 36, he says this. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in law replied, well, it's obvious, right? The one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus says, right, go and do likewise. What's the one thing? It's the one thing that brings real change to the world. It's being, having the posture of a humble servant, which is really about loving God, and having the mindset and attitude lived out in action, loving your neighbor. Those two things go hand in hand. It's a going and doing, Jesus says. It's not just a mindset and a posture. Like we said, the priests and the Levite who walked past this guy, don't you think their hearts were breaking for that poor guy? Don't you think they might even said, oh, man, that poor guy, he looks like he's desperate. I'm going to pray for him. I hope somebody comes by and takes care of him. It's not just a mindset and a feeling and a heart and an attitude and a posture that changes the world. It's an acting. It's love and action. Colossians 3 tells us pretty specifically what it is. Colossians 3 verse 12 says this. Therefore, 
As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with... Clothe yourselves with... Compassion. Compassion. Webster defines it as sympathetic consciousness of another's distress, together with the desire to alleviate it. See, the world even knows the definition of compassion is not just a feeling and feeling sorry for or with somebody. It's an action to alleviate the stress and the tension. The word in Greek for compassion literally means to suffer with. And so Jesus is just pointing this out. He's saying you have to be a humble servant to have the mindset and attitude and posture of serving in others. But that is not enough. You have to be armed with compassion, something that causes you to move at the problem, to help alleviate the stress and the tension and the injustice that you see in the world around you. But how does this really change the world? It seems so soft and nice. We like the stories of the money and the armies and the power and the status and the position. But as we look back at history, has that really brought any change? So how is it that compassion brings proven, lasting, real change to the world? Well, the great thing is, is Jesus isn't just the I tell you what to do guy. He's the I show you how to live guy. So we're going to look at a few passages where Jesus shows us what compassion looks like. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 40. What do we learn about compassion from Jesus and how it brings real change to the world? Mark chapter 1, verse 40. It says, a man with leprosy that came to him and he begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Not surprising, right? I mean, this guy just been healed from leprosy. He would want everybody to know, look, I'm healed. And so what happens? As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. What do we learn? What do we see about compassion lived out in the world? Well, the first thing is compassion is fueled by injustice. Compassion sees and does something. Right? What does it say here? Jesus was indignant. Some translations say that he was moved with compassion. Well, what was he indignant about? Indignant. He's angry. He's frustrated. Why? Because the man has leprosy? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Because that's just evil displayed in the world. And he's saying, that's not God's design for you. My father did not create you to live like that and to have that. And so he's indignant and frustrated at the evil in the world. But what else do you think? moved him to compassion. See, the leprosy in that day, what happens? It makes you unclean. So you have to live outside of the community. You are alone. You are isolated. You are cut off. You are held at a distance. And that man was alone his whole life. And he was held at a distance. And Jesus is so frustrated and indignant at that. This is unjust. This is not okay. This is not the way my father designed this world and us to live. 
And so he's fueled by injustice. What else happens? Compassion is about touching the untouchable people. Compassion is close enough to touch. You see, we knew at that time leprosy causes you to be unclean. And like I said, you're cut off from the community. When you were healed, only a priest could declare you clean or unclean. That's why Jesus says, hey, go, t- go show yourself to the priest. You need to be declared clean so that you can be part of this community again. So that you can receive and enjoy all that God has designed you for. So go live that story out. But compassion has to be close enough to touch. And it's about touching the untouchable people. Because in that day, if you even came close or touched a person with leprosy or ate next to them, you would be declared unclean too. So then you would have to go live in complete isolation and live out all this ritualistic process until the priest could declare you clean again. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't just lob some compassion from a distance. Don't you think he could have healed the guy from a distance? I mean, we have stories in the Bible where he healed people from a distance. He's making a point by saying he touches him. Compassion, fueled by injustice. Compassion, about touching the untouchable. Compassion, also we see that compassion is about being available, which means it is not convenient. Jesus issues this strong warning for him not to tell anybody except the priest to be declared clean and be put back into community. Why do you think that is? Because he probably knew he was going to be inundated with people who would want to be healed, who would want to be cured, who would want to be set free. He already had people following him everywhere. And so what happens as a result of that? It doesn't become convenient for Jesus. He has to do what? Move away to lonely places just to try and live life. But people still find him, and they still invade that space just like it was theirs. Compassion is being available. It is not convenient. I got a great lesson in this from my wife. She didn't ask me if I wanted it. She just did. And you see, we live in this neighborhood, a little cul-de-sac and stuff. We've lived there about eight years. And I used to be, and I kind of liked being the guy, actually, that would just drive home and, like, drive in my garage and shut the door behind me and then get out of my car and go inside and go, I made it, didn't see any neighbors, didn't have to talk to anyone, didn't have to drain more energy, you know, sneak my trash cans out in the dark of night and pull them back in, like, super early in the morning or something. It's like, I, the, I don't want those issues. This is my safe haven. It's like, aren't we supposed to rest here and get connected? So my wife starts going, no, that's not okay. We have to be the people God's called us to be. We can't just pray and love and say we're part of this community. We have to extend compassion. And it's not going to be convenient. So I started driving home, and our garage door would be up. And there'd be bikes and razors and skateboards and sidewalk chalk and everything all around and kids running around and throwing balls and hitting cars. And I'm like, ah, this is going to go crazy. My backyard's full. I have three kids. There'd be any day six to 15 kids at my house. And I'm like, really? Really? And here's what that turned into. Not just the afternoons, because then it's like, well, if I can survive a couple hours, it's dinner time, right? And send them home. What it turned into is we got to know these kids, and they actually got to see that our house was a safe space. And maybe not in the most practical way, like healing leprosy, but it was safe enough to bring healing. And it was safe enough to have honest conversations. And it was safe enough that we wouldn't judge them or condemn them, and that we'd be close to them in their stories. And so now there's two kids across the street, and their father is a single dad, tough story, but he's an alcoholic. 
And so there's some nights he passes out by 8 o'clock. And so they'll come over to our house, and there's a knock at our door at 8.45. We're trying to get three kids to bed. We just finished dinner. We're trying to get the house cleaned up. It is not convenient. But we open the door, and they sit down, and they say, hey, what should we do? There's a little kid down the street who uh, his parents got put in jail, so he was living with his cousin. And there's a bunch of them in the house now, and he would come down and just say, can I play with Kate and Tate? I don't have anybody to play with. We just get to be that place now. And it is not convenient. And it is, in so many ways, more exhausting. But in the last five, six years, I have actually learned what it looks like to love people and to love my neighbor differently. Because my wife moved me into this place of living out compassion. What else does compassion look like? Turn in your Bible to John chapter 9. We're just going to look at the first four verses. What does Jesus show us about compassion? John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, well, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. What do we learn about compassion? Compassion loves the unlovable people. Compassion loves the forgotten and the marginalized. And even the blind people, which you could just walk by on the other side of the road and just completely ignore and they wouldn't know. Is there anybody held at a distance more than that? Let's just pretend they're not even there. And then we won't have to respond. Compassion is about loving those people. Compassion, part of that love, it doesn't judge And it doesn't blame. Because when we do that, we're holding them at a distance. Because all of a sudden, what does it become? Them. And these these people are saying, well, what did they do? What did this man do? What did they do to cause this in their life? And don't we do that as a culture? Don't we look at homeless people holding signs up, begging for food, looking for jobs, and go, what did they do to get in that circumstance? Don't we look at people living in transitional housing or motels? or foster care, or whatever it might be, and say, what did they do? What addictions do they have? What drugs do they do? What bad habits? Why can't they keep a job? It's their fault. My taxes pay for that. Certainly there's a way to do it. I'm already contributing to their story. And we make it about them. Compassion says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not about judging or affixing blame. It's not, it's about redeeming and reconciling what's broken in the world and in people's lives and in people's stories. It's about moving close and not holding up our arms to people. Compassion. The other thing it does is it draws attention to God and allows us to take part in his story with his power. I love verse four of this. Look at what it says. As long as it is day... We must do the works of him who sent me. Who is the we? You. You are the we. I am the we. Who's the me? Jesus. Isn't it interesting that he chooses the, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. You see, you're not getting out of this. 
This wasn't just for the people that happened to be within earshot of this question or this story in the Bible. This is something that lives for centuries. That he's saying everyone who follows me, who takes part in this story, who assumes the posture of a humble servant and says, that's the life I want to live, great. Then we must do the work of him who sent me. We. And what do we get? We get to take part in seeing this amazing story. It's not even in our own strength or our own power. So when you go, oh, I can't, he's going, you're right, but I can. It's about me and my story and my power that lives in you because of Jesus. Compassion draws attention to God. Compassion doesn't allow us to hold it at his distance. Turn back, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. One more story, because I just don't think you're convinced. I don't think you, I think you think I'm crazy. There's no way Jesus is saying we have to be a part of this like that. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. I'm not making this up, guys. It's in the Bible. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, familiar name, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous. The translation there literally would be self-righteous, but sinners. Compassion. What do we learn? Compassion is inclusive. Compassion is looking for the most marginalized, the most forgotten, the most despised people of the day. You see, tax collectors at that time were not as loved and revered as we love the IRS today. (laughs) Things have changed a lot since then. Tax collectors in that day were Jewish people of the same descent who were working for the Romans, who actually would work for the Romans, and they would take more than their share from their own people and skim some off the top to live on and then pass it on to the Romans. They were traitors. They were hated. They were liars. They were thieves in the eyes of these people. And what does Jesus do? Calls one to be one of the big 12, one of the ones to walk with him. And you see, it's a big deal that he's eating with them. That would have made him unclean yet again. He's eating with the tax collectors, the despised, the hated, and the sinners of the day. When was the last time you sat down at a table with those kinds of people in the world today so that your friends were going, why are you hanging out with them? That's the question we should get asked all the time if we're living out the story that Jesus is showing us. Compassion is inclusive. Compassion is focused. What does he say? I'm not looking for healthy people. I'm not looking for righteous or self-righteous people. I'm looking for what? The sick. I'm looking for people that are looking to be healed. 
that know that they are broken, that know that there's a bigger story that actually is supposed to take place in this world, that is not pretending and just trying to find their way. I'm looking for those people. It's focused. Over and over we see you just can't lob compassion over the fence. Compassion has to move close. It's not just a feeling. Compassion, the word, the way it's used in the Bible, it describes it that it comes from this place within us where like the basic instincts of life are found. So fight or flight and hunger and shelter, like those core parts. Compassion comes from the same place in us. So literally, we have to choose to shut it down. We have to choose not to act as opposed to choose to act in our lives with compassion. So how does being a humble servant armed with compassion change the world? How does being a humble servant that is fueled by injustice, that is moving close, that is inclusive, that is focused on what our job is, that is about redemption, that's about being available to the point of being inconvenienced in our life, that acknowledges that we get to take part in God's story with his power. How does that bring lasting change? It's the only thing that changes everyone involved. You see, all the other answers for change in the world are about prideful, changing someone else kinds of things. I'm going to use my money and my strength and my power and my army and my position and everything just to help you. And then I get to feel good about myself because I helped you. That's not what compassion is. Compassion changes everything because it begins with being a humble servant, armed with moving close to help heal and redeem and reconcile. And it's messy. In our journey with our neighborhood about three or four years ago, my wife and I said, you know, maybe we should engage the Safe Families program. And I don't know how much you know about that, but the counties, right, have actually decided that they want to partner with the church. How crazy is that? How could we say no? So the government is saying, we want to partner with churches because we know that you have some compassionate caring for, for orphans and poor and needy thing." And so before kids whose families are in crisis go into the system and the foster care system and get caught up in all that, is there a way that we could sort of pre-approve families to just bring kids in for a temporary period of time to let their stories heal? How do we say no? So my wife and I say, let's do this. Let's figure it out. We've lived this out now a couple times. Um, Every time it's got its own journey, but one of them uh, was incredibly painful. There was two girls, and we thought it was going to be for about three weeks. It turns out uh, we had these two, but there was a family of five. They had three other sisters we didn't know about, and it turned out to be over four months that they were with our family as the mom was just struggling to get back on her feet. There were times we thought she wasn't going to even be able to take them back. And this was a season we went through Thanksgiving and through Christmas, and both these girls had birthdays, and two of my kids had birthdays. And then you're doing weekly visits with the other sisters and with the mom. And my wife is doing four different drop-offs at four different schools and pickups on the same day. It was exhausting, and it was messy, and it was hard. But compassion changed us. I got to see it change my kids in the way that they understand what it looks like to love and serve people in a really tangible way as they said, here's our house, here's our toys, here's our family. Have at it. It changed my wife and I as we got to weather storms that we never thought we were going to make it through. 
it changed this other family as now they're reunited. They connected with Jesus and the church in this season in a way that they never have. The mom's got a job. She's healthy. She's stable. It was way different than we thought. But it changed us. To the point that at the end of it, God kept talking to us and he said, hey, maybe you should adopt. No, I shouldn't. <laughs> I know the answer to that. But we said, yeah. So we started this journey and just three weeks ago we found out, congratulations, you're approved. What now? I don't know. And I'm scared to death. And we can't change the whole county, but we can change it for one little girl. What does it look like for you to be a humble servant, armed with compassion in the context that God has put you? What does that look like? Barb's going to come and describe to us what it looks like for us here as a community as God continues to speak. Hi, guys. So I'm going to tell you a story about Alabama. And some of you might have met her last weekend. She was out on our patio. And um, she was out there by the coffee and the donuts and sitting there. And we were, people were swirling all around, you know. And earlier that morning, she was actually on a bus. And she met a fella that was on his way here. And he invited her to come. And she did. And um, she came here because she's like, it's a church, and I need help. Because Alabama was homeless, and she's mentally ill. So maybe you guys now are thinking, oh, that's right. I saw that. I saw her out there. So many of you um, just rallied around Alabama and just showed her such amazing, compassionate love. It was really cool. It's been cool to even hear the stories throughout the weekend. Um, one, one fella told me, uh, you know, I really felt God prompting me just to sit and talk. And there's, there's no way in a million years I would have ever done that. And I feel like God's working on me. And I sat down and I had a conversation with, uh, with the two of them out there. And, and he was just excited to share with that, that with me on the patio after service. And another one of you ran up to our, our resource closet. We have a closet upstairs that volunteers have filled with hygiene items and clothes, just for instances just like that. And then by the time I got over there, it was amazing. One of you had grabbed our first aid kit, went over to Alabama, and she had a cut on her foot and started cleaning out the cut on her foot and wrapping it with gauze. And Alabama looked like she hasn't showered in, you know, maybe months, and her feet reflected that. And he just was actually thinking, I'd, I'd love to wash her feet. I'd love to figure out how to do that and kind of struggled, uh, he said, because he thought maybe after the fact I should I should have done that. But the fact is, is he was on his knees cleaning out a cut on her foot out there. It's amazing. And during... Um, during both services, many of you had interactions, and, but it was like well after the 11 o'clock service, and I was standing on the other side of the patio, and someone came up to me and said, hey, um, Alabama's still here. And I was like, oh, I thought she had gone. And he said, yeah, she's looking for the church phone number in case she needs some help. So I went over there, and I just sat down with her, and I just started talking. And we just, just like chit-chatted, you know, and I was asking her questions, and she was answering the best that she could. And it was like 45 minutes that I sat and talked to her, and... Um, and a rooted group actually got out 
and they had leftover lunch, and so I made a couple of plates, and I went out, and I just sat down and, and, and sat down with her again, and I had lunch with Alabama, and we just kept talking. I kept asking questions and listening, and as I'm listening, I'm just, I, I just was observing her, and, you know, her, listening to her words and just kind of getting lost in her journey, and just as, as I'm praying, I'm like, God, how did she get like this? Like, how did she get here? Where did she come from? Where is she going? Like, what will happen to her? And, and above all, will anyone even care or know? And I, I, by the time we, you know, she was, she was eating, and again, I was just watching her and just saw, like, you know, the dirt on her, on her neck and watching her gingerly eat this pasta salad, but quickly, you know, because it was like she's got these missing, you know, teeth and, and she's this hunger that I can't even imagine. And the crazy thing was is we were the same age. I mean, I was trying to guess her age, and I'm guessing that we were probably the same age. And so I asked Alabama, um, as before we parted, I said, how can I pray with you? And she said, um, for protection and for safety. So I prayed with her. And then I felt the Holy Spirit just prompting me, like, you need to affirm, you need to affirm her. And I just said, Alabama, and I looked at her and I said, you are beautiful. You are beautiful inside and out. You are a, the daughter of, of, of the king, and he loves you more than you can even imagine. And she just like lit up. I mean, she was like stood up a little straighter and smiled and was like, thank you, thank you. And so we parted ways, and I was just in a daze for the rest of the day. I mean, I was like, what just happened? And I, I get home, and my husband Gino asked me how my day was, and I just started bawling. I was just a wreck. And I, I, I've been asking God all week, like, God, what is it that you want me to learn from this? Like, why did this happen? And honestly, like, I'm, I'm still figuring it out, and I'm still processing it, but the things that I have learned um, are a, n- a number of things. One is I realize that I just have this in, even greater sense of responsibility to share what God, share what God has blessed me with. Um, I... I had this crazy feeling sitting down talking to her um, because of my story and my journey. I thought, you know, I could have been down a road not that much different than hers. I realized that I am thankful that I can feel again. And I know that may sound crazy, but I just, over the last 10 years, I've traveled a lot on missions trips and seen some pretty devastating things around the country and um, the world, actually. And I started feeling calloused. I started feeling like my heart was calloused. And I remember a year ago in Kenya asking God just to break my heart. And he sent Alabama right here in our doorstep to just devastate me and break my heart. Uh, I, um, and I almost missed it. I mean, that's the crazy thing. This week I was reading through Matthew 25. Um, you guys know that, that passage where he's, the Lord says, when did I, um, Lord, or no, it says, Lord, when did I see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The Lord will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. Like, I might have missed lunch with Jesus. I don't think it's a mistake that this lunch happened with Alabama the week before I was supposed to stand up here and just share with you guys and kind of challenge you with the same things that God is just rocking me with. Like, where is Jesus in your lives and you're missing him? Like, who or how are you being called to love? And what's the name of your wall that's keeping you from compassionate love? God's been taking me on this crazy journey, and I am more aware than ever of the state of our homelessness in South County. And I um, was sharing some stats last night, and I had people on the patio that were like, wait, what were those? Those were like, I, I want to know what those were. So I asked them to put them up on the screens for you guys. Um, many of you probably think that mental illness in Orange County looks a lot like Alabama, but the fact is mental illness only counts for 8% of homelessness in Orange County. The fact is, is that job loss and divorce and medical emergency are the top three reasons for homelessness in Orange County. In fact, did you know that an Orange County has the highest rate of homelessness per capita in the entire U.S.? I'm sorry, the second highest. And in the last three years, there's been a 29% increase in the number of children K through 12 who are homeless in Orange County. Now, I know I'm focusing a lot on homelessness, but the fact is is that injustice has many names in Orange County and around the world related to orphans and education and abuse and many other aspects of poverty. Did you know that there are estimated over 153 million orphans in the world? That's enough to go around the equator three times. Did you know that, the, that there are 127,000 children in America's child welfare system? And if every church in America had one family in its congregation to adopt a child, there would be no child left in that system. And we can totally do that. Kyle's doing it. You're doing it, Kyle. <laughs> Did you know that the way California projects how many prison cells they will need is by keeping track of how many students enter high school, reading below their grade level. Mariners Outreach is committed to tackling these issues by, um, one, stepping out with a posture and an attitude of humility and of biblical poverty, like that we are all spiritually and relationally broken. And when we go out and serve just open, that way, with those lenses on, it just makes for a level playing field. Like, we all are on a level playing field. And God has something to teach each of us, and we will learn as much from those we're serving as they have to teach us, as, as you know, we have to offer each other. Like, we will learn just as much. And we do it through global partnerships, and we do it through local churches with visionary leaders who... Um, we follow them, and they teach us their cultural context, and, and they have a vision for their community that's sustainable. 
And we do it through, a must, most of all and above all, through you guys. Through encouraging you to um, find what God is calling you to. And to step out and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It just takes one to have a holy discontent that can't sit there and can't sit still and see something not happen to create a movement. And you'll see lots of stories on the patio of like the just ones that created movements. Here And here at MV, you know, we, um, we have courageously stepped out and we have tackled these issues and we're serving the community and we're going to Mexico and we're doing these things. But the fact is, is that chronic systemic issues still exist and we have the resources and responsibility to make a difference. And I feel like God's only scratched the surface on how he's going to use us. Recently, I heard a story of this bamboo plant, and it grows like an inch, like a year, and then till the roots grow really deep for like the first three or four years, and then all of a sudden, the top just takes off, and it grows like two feet per day, and I'm like, that's us. That's where we're at. Like, our roots have been growing deep, and it's like time for us just to take off and make a difference and make an impact, and I feel like this message is, this series has been so amazing just to go, hey, we are going out with this posture of humble servants armed with compassionate love, and courageously changing our county, South County, and the world. And I just want to invite you guys to join me in that. Join me in just discovering what is God calling us to as Mariner's Mission Viejo. Like, what are the big things that he's calling us to tackle, to make an impact in the foster care system, or the education system, or homelessness? Or what are those needs in South County and beyond that together we will collectively lock arms and make an impact for Jesus? So join me in that. And Kyle's going to come back up and talk about what's next. But thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Okay, you ready? Okay. Take out your pumpkin-colored envelope. (laughs) Your pumpkin spice colored envelope. Because our our journey begins right here. And here's why. This envelope represents your heart. It represents um, your posture. It represents your attitude. Jesus says that that our heart goes where our money goes. We think it's the other way around, but it's not. And this is our opportunity to step out together in faith and help Uh, change the systemic issues that affect Orange County the way Barb just talked about. And I believe we can do that. I believe we can do that. And so this morning, this begins our journey to this together. Barb, what does this go to? Vision? Well, it's going to go to the big things God's calling us to that we don't even know yet. But the things that we are are doing already, the military support ministry, the homeless ministry, and then there's front lines that are launching. Uh, There's action teams that we're launching, which is matching your skills and your resources to needs in our community. And um, there's a theater arts ministry that's launching that is uh, towards at-risk kids to empower them through the arts. Um, We want to make an impact for marriages in South County and in this church. And and globally, Mariners MV is partnering with two global partners, Mexico. uh, We're helping with our partner there to build a brand new church and community center. And we want so many of you to go down and help build this church and community center and put our financial resources to that. And then the coolest thing is we just got approved for Uganda ministry. So, (laughs) So, um, yeah, so those are our global, that's where to go to. You could end up in Uganda if you're not careful. It's cool. Okay. Ushers are going to come forward. Let me pray for us as we take the offering.
Father, we thank you for the story that you're writing, and we acknowledge that we are standing on the backs of centuries of people, humble servants that have lived and acted with compassion. So we thank you for the heritage that we have in that, God, and I pray and believe that as you're speaking to us, God, that we will be courageous in our response too. That we will help create and lay and continue a foundation here in Orange County for future generations where your kingdom continues to grow mysteriously and supernaturally in your power and in your strength, changing lives forever, bringing lasting proven change in this world. So God, take these resources that we're giving, our hearts, our lives, and we believe that you will use and multiply. And we pray this in the power of your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.